0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today I'm speaking with Gwen Archangelis about her book, Bioimperialism, Disease, Terror, and the Construction of National Fragility, published by Rutgers University Press in 2021. Gwen Archangelis is an activist scholar and associate professor in gender studies at Skidmore College. Her areas of teaching and research include gender, race, and science, feminist science fiction, Disease and Empire, and Feminist and Anti-Imperial Praxis. In addition to her published work, she is involved in community engagement projects in Asian American justice and health justice, and blogs on topics of science justice. Gwen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Well, I'm really excited to have you here speaking about your book and the way that you frame different events that have occurred since 9-11. So just to begin, would you tell us a bit about your own background and how you became interested in writing a book about bioimperialism?
1: Yes. um, So you know what? I've long been interested in politics of science on the one hand, and also social inequities, which has led me to activism, interest in social justice. And this background I have in the biosciences. I have an undergraduate degree, um, and I worked in various labs as a lab tech before I went to grad school in women's studies and focused on feminist science studies. So much of my scholarly career has focused on the war on terror. So I've looked at anti-Arab, anti-Muslim racism and how it became a rationale for US invasion of Afghanistan and then Iraq, the targeting of Arabs and Muslims within the US and worldwide. So let me take us actually to the early 2000s. So I was steeped in feminist response to these uh, U.S. government atrocities. I was steeped in transnational feminism, exploring intersections between sexism and this colonial uh, militarism that I've been talking about with the war on terror. And there was this really strange phenomenon I noticed uh, at I was at the UC, the University of California System, and I saw these flyers that were basically uh, advertising biodefense and recruiting scholars to get trained in biodefense. So I actually ended up enrolling to see, to see what it was all about. Let me just briefly say, biodefense is an industry that researches biological weapons, germ weapons, things like anthrax, small smallpox. There's a whole host of um, germs and pathogens that have been weaponized in biological programs in past and present. Um, so, okay, so this recruitment flyer was looking for scientists primarily and disease researchers, and again, just scholars in general interested in addressing this so-called bioterrorism threat. So as I said, I enroll, and I start seeing that there is this biodefense arm of the war on terror. And it led me to the research that culminated in several articles and then this book. And what I'm really looking at is the U.S. uh, Biological Weapons Program, its more current version as biodefense, and how um, this biodefense realm really expanded its capacity in the war on terror and during the war on terror and as another piece of that um disease researchers and public health also get enlisted into this biodefense arm of the war on terror that i'll I'll talk about um, a bit later and i yeah that's really the nutshell of how i got into this topic in general it's been a bit over a decade um and uh yeah, I moved on to some other projects, but that's that's how I got into that.
0: Uh, wow, really interesting how you managed to incorporate all of your interest there um, into oh, yeah. this. And so just so everyone is clear, what is bioimperialism and where did the idea originate?
1: Great question, okay, so let me just briefly say i am looking at the following aspects of bioimperialism and then i'll get into more of what it is so i'm looking at as i said u.s biodefense the disease research industry and then public health at large so i'm putting this within this framework which in simple terms bioimperialism describes the way global powers like the united states control and extract biological resources around the world so typically When scholars and activists are talking about this extraction of biological resources, they're talking about plants, or more recently, genetics. So some well-known examples include researchers and corporations who patent medicinal plants from abroad, Um, so neem, ayahuasca are some examples. There's also things like the Human Genome Diversity Project um, in the 90s, so that commodified cell lines of indigenous people, and that got a lot of attention and pushback. So a couple of key scholars that really developed um, this framework, scholars and activists, uh, Vandana Shiva, who's a feminist environmentalist scholar and activist, um, has looked at, in particular, um, plant patenting. Um, And really, the reason that imperialism is part of this framework is the idea that this extraction is part of the legacy of colonialism, right? So colonialism, extracting land, extracting labor, knowledge, bodies, all kinds of things. And this is just the updated version um, of that colonial legacy. Uh, I also highlight that other more commonly used terms are biopiracy. So this emphasized piracy, right? The stealing aspect, stealing um, plants, stealing um, genetics, And then biocolonialism is another concept people use to focus on the colonial dynamics. I use bioimperialism just because I want to emphasize um, the imperial aspect, which looks more at the world system part of it. So colonialism tends to be focused on specific sites of extraction, and I'm really looking at this whole world system, which in my book, I'm focusing on um, the world system, bioimperial system, U.S. Bioimperialism, in particular, as something that has structured biodefense, structured disease research, and public health for the benefit of the US, the global north, in partnership with Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. And th- this partnership has enabled Big Pharma and the global north to, to extract biological materials for corporate profit. So lastly, I will say, um, I'm looking at germs. So this is not the common thing that's looked at, right? Plants and genetics, it's more clearly um, seen as a biological entity, a resource that you'd want to extract, you want to use, could get you um, profit, could get you a lot of benefits. So germs, you know are, are really different because our idea generally is that we want to eradicate germs right we don't want germs so it's hard to see them as a resource however i'm looking at them as a resource for two reasons so one i already mentioned that germs are the entities that can be made into bioweapons so bioweapons increase bio warfare arsenal increase uh, military power so the us bio defense program essentially increases and enhances US empire. And then secondly, germs are the basis for the antivirals, the treatments, the vaccines, antibiotics that are produced from them. And this is both for health benefit, but also big pharma makes quite a lot of money from the treatments it develops from the basic material of germs. So that's really, that's really the whole story of, of how I'm using bioimperialism, where it came from, and why I'm using it to focus on germs in particular.
0: And of course, this seems really timely um, because of the pandemic, but it also seems like it's been really timely for a while. And the period you begin with uh, 9-11, right after 9-11, and the book be- opens with a recollection of the so-called anthrax attacks, and that was when a a spate of letters carrying anthrax spores were sent to news organizations and some senators' offices in the days following 9-11. And I myself remember so well following the story I was reading about it in the newspapers as the FBI was seeking the culprit. How does the story illustrate your themes?
1: Yes, um, so as you said, it, was a spate of spores being sent to uh, Congress, congressional reps, and some news media. So I just want to say, first of all, that there were five deaths and 17 injuries uh, from folks that ended up inhaling those spores. Mm -hmm. Um, But because it followed September 11 and the Al-Qaeda attacks on World, World Trade Center and the Pentagon, it got immediately put into this framework um, of bioterrorism, right, and labeled as a bioterrorism attack. So anything that's put into this category of terrorism, in this case, bioterrorism, it's really not a neutral label. Um, It's a security label. The the concept of terrorism itself evolves from the, uh, the end of the Cold War context. So this is the period in the 90s where the US actually becomes the sole global superpower, right? So, the fall of this, the former Soviet Union, the US is left, becomes a global super, superpower, and then starts putting its attention onto these, what are actually smaller threats. So, not from nations, but these groups, these networks that are then um, put into this framework of, of terrorism. And so I just wanted to give, you, give a little bit of it, that side piece on thinking about terrorism as not a neutral label. It's something typically that um, those in power can use against um, non-state actors, right, with less, lesser power. So that would be a group like al-Qaeda. And also that it's very much racialized. So in, in this end of the Cold War period, terrorism is indelibly attached to anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racism, which itself has derived from um, U.S. intervention in the Middle East right, for various reasons like resources, oil, um, strategic control of the region, etc. So um, long story short, labeling the anthrax mailings as a bioterror attack invokes this huge uh, war on terror type of framework, um, which is tied to racism and imperialism in the middle east okay so with that background what actually happened was the fbi um, investigating the source of the anthrax within months um, traced it to u.s labs so despite right this this racialized terror um discourse the anthrax came from u.s labs and they found this because the the particular strain used um was traced to Fort Detrick. This is our big biodefense lab. This is where scientists are doing germ warfare research uh, for the US government. And then they trace the anthrax strain source to this flask that is in the lab of this biodefense scientist, Bruce Ivins. Um, So Bruce Ivins is um, white, he's male, he's a government scientist. And I say all of that to say he completely confounded and contradicted the dominant ideas about who uses uh, germ weapons, right? So you have um, a white man and then you have a government scientist who's doing biodefense research. Biodefense research presumably is to protect the U.S. nation. Um, It's not for the scientists to use against right, within the nation. So all of these kind of um, things that really contradict dominant ideas about terrorism and about who is safe and who is unsafe, who's a threat, who's not. All of that um, is contradicted, yet I will say that at the end of the day, um, bioterrorism discourse, its racialization, attachment to the Middle East is not dislodged by any of these like factual happenings. All right, So we continue to have both biodefense actually those biodefense labs are given more money um the only the only change is really that those biodefense labs have more um security measures right so there's more security there's more security clearances screening the scientists but the underlying idea that germ warfare research should be done can be done and should be more heavily invested to none of that's changed by the actual occurrence of the anthrax mailings. And in addition to that, I will say the racialization of who's considered a terrorist also doesn't get changed. Uh, it's still attached to um, Arab, Arabs, Muslims, people of color in general, people outside of the US. Um, so I, I wanted to highlight there's that contradiction between the reality and the myth-making and the discourse that helps prop up uh, U.S. imperialism, U.S. racism, et cetera.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and of course we have a number of other cases of domestic terrorism, um, not necessarily to do with bioterrorism, but... So, in chapter one... Let me one, say something about
1: that, if yeah, you yeah, don't go mind. On. You know, so, so there's been this debate around whether these, uh, basically white supremacists, right, men usually are... Um, should be categorized as domestic terrorism, right? On the one hand, um, there's a way in which uh, we wanna highlight that uh, this state, right, of white supremacist, um, predominantly white men doing all this violence, gun violence, et cetera, that we wanna highlight it through this rhetoric of terrorism, right? That's a way to show that this is a real problem. On the other hand, The government response, um, as I showed with the anthrax mailings, the government response to anything that is in the realm of counterterrorism inevitably harms people of color, inevitably helps prop up the U.S. imperial state. So in other words, um, more attention to uh, and funding to domestic terrorism even will not end up targeting um, or or addressing white men. Huh. That's never how it's gone, right? So what ends up happening is that more money into anything labeled terrorism ends up um, putting money into surveillance of Muslims within the U.S. So this happened even, I'm going to just cite, uh, was it 1996, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bombings, same thing happened there. He was labeled a domestic terrorist. Money got put into domestic terrorism, but then most of that money went towards um so-called international terrorism. So that's one of the, the issues around how to actually address white supremacy with or without the label of domestic terrorism.
0: That's very interesting. Um, in chapter one, you give us three depictions of the bioterrorist other, which are all based in an Ori- Orientalist view. So the Iraqi women scientists stood out to me as a particularly complex example of science, humanity, and the news media colliding. Would you just explain briefly who these scientists were and how they became Mrs. Anthrax and Dr. Germ to the American public?
1: All right, so these were these two Iraqi scientists who got detained um, as it, during the war on terror. So one is Rahab Taha, and she, uh, okay, the other one is Dr. Pura um, Amash. And both of these scientists were high level, um, either in prestigious university or in uh, government positions. And they also uh, notably got their graduate education in um, the UK, in the case of Taha and uh, the U.S. in the case of Amash. So this becomes important to how they end up getting characterized. Um, specifically, I'll say that Taha um, had been the subject of U.S. and U.K. surveillance since, since the mid-90s because there was some information that she was involved in Iraq's bio program before it got destroyed, which was also in the mid-90s. So um, that's one important piece. The other thing in terms of why they were... Uh, they were caught up in this uh, U.S. system. The other thing is Dr. Amash uh, had actually published about the effects of the U.S. government bombing of Iraq during the first Gulf War, so that was in, in 1990. So she talked about, for example, the carcinogenic effects of depleted uranium. So she was also very critical of the U.S. war and published on, uh, on that. So this information is really hard to come by. I will also say because, um, right? This they were both detained, but they were actually never formally charged. So this is in the national security realm. It's very hard to get information about um, the people that are detained, why they were detained, and their and their background in particular, um, because I'm situated in the, in the United States. So I got a lot of this information from the news media. So that's that's really how we can get um, this kind of information when we're outside of that region. So on the one hand, the news media provided some details about their detainment, which is important, but the news media's, and I'm talking primarily US and UK, also uh, produced and circulated these problematic, as you said, orientalist depictions of them and i'm gonna talk about that so the the labels right mrs anthrax dr germ this is just the the tip of the iceberg right both of those are gendered terms they're they're high threat language but that's the tip of the iceberg so the types of meter representations i'll give you a few examples um so both end up getting described in these animalistic terms kind of like wild animals so lioness fox Um, Taha at one point is described as like throwing and tossing chairs around. So this kind of depiction is actually a legacy of sexist orientalist depictions of women of color and of women in the global south. This is nothing new. But I will emphasize that because they're both Arab women there's an interesting twist to the way that they're portrayed and the way it might be received by readers. So because the dominant portrayal of Arab women is as these very passive, um, victimized type of women, there's a weird twist, I would say, on showing and depicting Arab women as empowered or in this case as very dangerous ends up jarring um, people that are steeped in these expectations, right? These Western expectations of like a passive Arab woman. So then, Taha and Amash would seem all the more threatening and and strange, right, for being um, portrayed as these very vocal, wild type animalistic depictions. So that adds to the way they're seen as threatening. Um, and then, secondarily, there were specific. Uh, depictions of them as these type of third world scientists, I would call them. So there's, again, a larger, older discourse um, from uh, Western writing that depicts scientists in the global South as backward um, and trying to catch up with the West. So that's a very common portrayal. In this particular depiction, Taha and Amash are portrayed as actually very technologically capable because they were both trained in the us and uk so because they're trained in the west they're depicted as very very technologically capable but they're also portrayed as morally backward and this is part of the colonial depictions so they there's these quotes that describe taha for example as nationalistic western educated but also willing to violate international norms and scientific ethics so these very clear um, combining of technology expertise with these older ideas of a backward Global South woman. So you have this, again, in the realm of the war and terror um, viewpoint, this very dangerous person. So this is all happening um, while as I, they're detained for two and a half years and they're never even formally charged. But you have... A, the things that happened to them, right, the harm that they endured without us knowing exactly, right, any, without due process basically, Um, so caught up in the war on terror, and then you have this perpetuation of, on the one hand, bioterrorism, but in the form of these um, women, Arab women, who are both scientists, capable scientists, and terrorists, so you have this threat spectrum that's being advanced through these media depictions,
0: Hmm. So that presented a lot, you know, a lot of tropes all caught up together. And I imagine that that is a lot for Western minds kind of infused with ingrained Orientalist prejudice to grapple with.
1: Yes, exactly. So, you know, we already have this common figure of um, Saddam Hussein, right, or the Arab male terrorists usually, and then you add this, this is just another figure, right? You can add to this um, terror specter from the perspective of of Western thought.
0: So as you describe in chapter two, much of the biodefense buildup was done through the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and the pharmaceutical industry. And you write about this in the book, and it's really interesting. So I want to ask you about it here. What was the effect of this partnership between the biodefense and um, NIH pharmaceutical industry on U.S. transparency and compliance when it came to international weapons disarmament?
1: Right. So chapter two is where I really dig into the nuts and bolts of biodefense. So I had already set up right in chapters one and the intro, this whole discourse and rhetoric um, that was racialized, that was gender, that was colonial, that was really amping up, right, the bioterrorism threat. And so biodefense is... um, Right, in part, the consequence of that amped-up attention to bioterrorism. So what? So there's some key developments um, in biodefense besides it's just expansion in the U.S. Um, during the war on terror. So first, let me let me just um, give a few details about biodefense. So it's important to note that biodefense research, um, its purview is actually in The government and specifically the military sector so this is like fort dietrich the department of defense but because there was merging between health um, and security or in fact i would say many um, many non-militarized sectors became militarized uh, during the war on terror what you see is department of defense nih right these various government sectors all doing biodefense So that's one thing. The other thing is that biodefense research doesn't just take place in the government. Because of the strength of um, corporations uh, and big pharma, a lot of that research happens uh, in private sector. And then as well, there's the third sector, um, academia. So there's also uh, researchers in academia doing this uh, germ weapons research. So, that being said, um, there are, there's a reason I highlighted these different sectors and mainly it's about uh, transparency, right, so the first question is what is the difference of biodefense research taking place in um, the academic sector versus the government and corporate sector? So the academic sector relies on peer review, relies on transparency, so it's it's a particular approach to doing scientific research and and um what the u.s military government side and corporations have in common is secrecy so on the military side right the secrecy is about making sure that bioweapons research stays in the u.s right stays in the right hands doesn't get in the hands of a nation or a group that would use that research against the U.S. Right, so that's the military perspective. The corporate perspective is proprietary, right? It's about um, keeping keeping proprietary information so that you can patent um, treatments, you can patent developments, and that's for profit. So these uh, these uh, so government and corporations end up partnering in the compliance regimes. Okay, so I need to back up and talk about what are these compliance regimes I'm talking about. So biodefense research has the name biodefense because that's the only type of germ research allowed. It needs to be for defensive purposes. So a lot of these big national programs, the US, UK, the US, former USSR, many nations around the world had developed active bioweapons programs for war purposes uh, during World War II. So nothing was, nothing, was really, um, uh, nothing was really out of bounds at that time. However, in 1972, an international convention gets passed, the Bio- Biological Weapons Convention. And so that convention outlawed bioweapons programs for offensive purposes. So in other words, you could only do research if you could uh, categorize it as for defense. So one issue um, remaining is that there is a thin line between biological weapons germ research that's for offensive purposes and for defensive purposes. So for example, oftentimes um, programs are producing biological weapons in order to test treatments against them. So who's to say right that the the um weapons you produced just for testing against them would stay in that lane right and don't end up getting um produced in large quantities and then used as a weapon so that's that's one of the issues with the slippery slope but um that aside what the international uh, regime did the 1972 weapons convention did was it implemented and instituted an inspections process. So to monitor that countries were complying with this albeit nebulous distinction between offensive and defensive programs, um, the UN would go in, inspect countries. So this happened in Iraq, for example, in the mid 90s. Iraq, along with Soviet Union um, and the US, Uh, have been known to continue some of its offensive weapons research. So Iraq, for example, gets subject to these inspections and um, have to destroy all of their uh, weapons in the mid-90s. So so with that weapons compliance, there's two problems that happen. So one is it's uneven. So I just mentioned that the um, U.S. and the Soviet Union both were continued with programs. But the one that got a lot of um, attention and actively had to destroy their weapons was Iraq. And that is because Iraq doesn't have a lot of uh, global power. So the U.S. has been, um, has many allegations from outside the U.S. and within that it's violated um, the offensive weapons ban more than once. And it's never been inspected. Right, So that's part of the problem with these international inspections regimes. Secondly, addressing the question you were asking, right, what is this partnership um, between pharma and government? So what what also has happened with the US um, is that it, it has allowed big pharma's interest in maintaining secrecies in lab to influence um, US policy and approach to the international weapons inspection regimes. So every five years or so, the international convention regime is um, meeting and ratifying and reformulating its inspections process. And so what the US did in the late 90s, for example, is use the use the rationale that um, inspections by the UN, for bioweapons compliance would endanger commercial proprietary, as well as national security interests. So in other words, the U.S. was pitching a position to weaken the U.N. inspections regime on the basis that not only national security interests would be at, at risk, but also um, commercial proprietary interests would also be at risk. from. Uh, these weapons inspections, and this has continued. So Bush did the same thing in 2001 when they reviewed the inspection regime. They actually didn't ratify um, these strengthened inspections uh, in 2001. And there's been well, all the presidents since then have never strengthened the UN uh, biological weapons inspection regime, always citing national security as a as a uh, problem or Um, proprietary interest as a problem. So this is that synergy and collaboration between U.S. military interest and big pharma corporate profit interest. Hmm.
0: Very interesting. And then I want to ask you, as I guess this is sort of a, follows on, something else that really captured my attention was the enlistment of public health in the national security agenda. And as you write, some senior public health scholars, including Victor W. Seidel, who was a veteran of the 1970s battles between progressive doctors and the establishment, and those were some pretty fierce battles, um, have criticized this collaboration. So what dangers lurk in the so-called securitization of public health?
1: There are um, three things I can talk about. Two are directly from Seidel and other critical health uh, practitioners and scholars. So they talk about, um, A, this uncritical partnering uh, between public health and law enforcement. So, and they call this securitization of public health. So examples of this look like when hospitals would share patient records if they suspected a patient had a disease that came from a bioterrorism attack. One thing I covered in this realm, uh, there was a bio artist named Steve Kurtz. He lost his wife, Um, she died in her sleep, he called 911, the police came, they called the FBI because they see he has um, his bio artwork. there's some petri dishes lying around, and he had some flyers with Arabic writing on them. So even, I didn't mention, he's a white man, he's in a pretty privileged position, even he got ensnared into um, this uh, national security apparatus. He actually got... um, the FBI uh, followed him and he got targeted and with the Patriot Act. So, mm-hmm. years of lawsuits, his peers were investigated. They ended up with no charge but mail and wire fraud for the mailing of biological materials with the scientists. So, that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a perfect example where there was a, a health situation that instead got put into the FBI's purview and then it just ran wild and causing a lot of harm to Steve Kurtz, who had already lost his wife, um, and to his peers. So that's um, one one example. The, the second thing is that this securitization of public health ends up um, steering where health research uh, goes towards. So health research ends up going more towards bioterrorism diseases which are very rare diseases things like anthrax so funding goes that way Um, scientists follow that funding and then that detracts from the research and the funding behind chronic widespread common diseases hiv tb um, and just health care in general Um, And then the third thing around the securitization of public health that I focus on in particular is this enlistment of healthcare workers into biodefense. And I had focused on this particular um, program, very, very, uh, sucked up a lot of money, the smallpox vaccination program in 2002. So this vaccine program asked Uh, healthcare workers who were both abroad but also within the United States, so the civilian healthcare workers, to get vaccinated against smallpox. So the idea, the justification was get vaccinated against smallpox in case there's a smallpox bioweapons attack. So the problem with this is that smallpox doesn't even exist as a disease anymore. It's actually this great example of a global health effort to eradicate disease it's one of two infectious diseases that has been eradicated and and this is since uh, 1980. so why would they have this program Um, it was part of again this bioterrorism scare this is 2002 the u.s is um, getting ready to invade iraq there's a lot of propaganda which we now know was um, false around Iraq having uh, weapons of mass destruction, including bioweapons, which it didn't have any of that. As I mentioned, the the program was destroyed in the 1990s through the UN inspection. Um, And President Bush at the time even said, there's no evidence of a smallpox. Um, There's no evidence of smallpox weaponry, but we need to prepare anyway. Actually his exact words was, quote, prudent to prepare, end quote. Right. So this is a real um, futuristic type of public health endeavor. So because of that. um, uh, So because of that, there was also a lot of uh, rightfully a lot of resistance to this particular vaccination program. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other problem is a lot of resources, again, get get pushed into what was really a waste of um, resources into. Uh, an unknown threat, a speculated threat against smallpox that didn't exist. When again we have all of these diseases and healthcare problems that we really need to put our healthcare focus on.
0: Mm. And that seems kind of a, a part of or a, a piece with the the tremendous military budget of the United States and how much goes into that military budget and all the other programs that are lacking, or needs that don't even have programs that are lacking. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to follow up. I'm I'm really glad you brought up the National Smallpox Vaccination Program and the the nurses' protest against being vaccinated, um, which as you say, was partly for anti-imperialist reasons, but, and you're careful in the book to distinguish between this and the phenomena of anti-vaxxers that we've seen recently. But I wonder, I do wonder if you see any connection to dissent, including from health workers, against the COVID-19 vaccines.
1: Yeah, this is such an important uh, current question. Um, You know, let me answer this by highlighting a few key points about the reasons that nurses in particular rejected the smallpox vaccination program this will get us into like what are the factors one should consider when thinking about vaccination so um, as you mentioned there was the anti-imperialist perspective so there was a significant segment of nurses who i will say who were the really the vanguard of um, people pointing out the problem with the smallpox vaccination program so they were at the front of that And they, again, a significant number of them pointed out that this was part of warmongering, drumming up a fear of smallpox, and therefore drumming up a a fear of Iraq. So that was one piece. Um, The other piece we can look at just solely in public health terms. The point of vaccination is to give you protection against disease. So as I mentioned, smallpox was not in existence. So there's no disease. And there was not even... The threat of it being used as a bioweapon to create disease so this is there's just no reason to get vaccinated against that the other thing i'll point out um, is that there is a consideration on the other side of if the vaccine produces side effects right so that is and always is a consideration with this particular vaccine around smallpox it did have a lot of side effects so this added to Um, the problem with getting vaccinated. So in in addition to there being no purpose for it, it was adding to ill health by producing side effects that were, they're more than other vaccines. So that particular vaccine has a little more side effects. Some of them are actually deadly um, compared to other ones. And it only really makes sense to take that vaccine if you have um, a real problem, a real threat of smallpox. Okay, so I wanted to emphasize that there's a specific set of conditions that compelled nurses to reject smallpox vaccine. So if we pivot now to the anti-vaxxer movement, um, this is driven by a different set of conditions and reasoning. So anti-vaxxer movement historically has been driven in part by a sense of white entitlement. So you have people who see themselves as individuals, their individual rights are very important to them. And this is because they're not part of a racially targeted group, right? So they have this privilege of individualism. And then you also have another big, uh, sector of this anti vaxxer movement who has a lot of class privilege. So these are the folks who have a lot of access to health care, they've got good food, they've got social safety nets. So if they do get sick, um, they have a lot of resources for treatment. And what has, um, what our legacy is with under COVID is an anti-vax movement that carries this extreme individualism with it. So individual rights uh, end up trumping every other con- consideration. So it trumps issues of collective health, issues of collective safety. Um, so what I'm really saying is that the anti-vax movement is largely based on social position. It's not really based on vaccination per se. So anti vaxxers um, would also differ, for example, from individuals who might be taking time to deliberate before getting COVID vaccines because they're members of a targeted group, right? So Black folks, Latinx folks, other POC, Indigenous folks, they have actually frequently been used as guinea pigs by the U.S. medical establishment. So their attitude towards the COVID vaccine would emerge from this collective experience of abuse, right? This is really different from anti-vaxxers who are motivated by this abstract and i would say self-centered sense of individualism so what i'm really tracing here is it's less about the connection between attitudes to the covid vaccine and it's more about two very different experiences with public health so privileged um and targeted really Uh, and the other thing i would emphasize is there's a collective care, right, that counters this individualism. So with COVID in particular, we see, um, right, despite reasons to deliberate, right, if you're part of a targeted group, we see BIPOC-serving public health advocacy groups do push for vaccination against COVID um, in their communities and everywhere because COVID has disproportionately been affecting um, BIPOC communities because of this overall conditions of uh, access, health access disparities, right? And then this issue or this principle of collective care that I'm saying is important also had appeared um, in in the nurses' actions who, when they oppose smallpox vaccination, right? There's no individual's motive there that you see in anti-vaxxers. Their motive was a, it's just, it just doesn't make sense from a health perspective, and also um, with With thinking about, okay, if this vaccination campaign against smallpox is contributing to um, warmongering to invade Iraq, and that war produced over 200,000 Iraqi deaths, supporting that smallpox vaccination program would be part of contributing to the real harm from the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. So we see just really different perspectives based on social position, attitudes towards individualism, attitude towards collective care. And so those are the things that... I'm, I'm saying are the key factors rather than, um, you know, an attitude about COVID, the COVID vaccine that that doesn't consider those type of factors.
0: Mm. Yeah, complex issue. Mm. Um, In chapter four, you describe how Indonesia successfully resisted the imbalance, I'll call it this, the imbalanced global north, global south dynamic. Uh, by refusing to donate samples of its flu virus to the WHO during the avian flu outbreak in the early 2000s. And Indonesia's decision was criticized in the Washington Post by Richard Holbrook and Laurie Garrett, who said it was based in self-destructive anti-Western sentiments. Now that response perhaps says more about the U.S. than it does about Indonesia. Uh, That's the sense I get from reading your book. So I want to ask you, what does it tell us about the U.S. or the U.S.'s bioimperialist? And what hopes does Indonesia's response give towards a new global dynamic? Well,
1: for the first part, what it tells us about the U.S., it tells us that the U.S., along with the global north in general, expect their interests to be first, Um, And it tells us that international bodies, including the World Health Organization, because it was actually set up by Europe um, and is heavily influenced by the U.S., um, that these are all geared towards protecting uh, the global north over the global south. And what I cover in Chapter 4 is how this dynamic was reflected in the World Health Organization's flu sharing system. So before COVID, we had we've had flu pandemics, and these are pandemic strains of flu. Um, they're not the seasonal flu that we've encountered, um, but these pandemic strains they have killed millions. They're they're very very serious. So a lot of attention before COVID was focused on them. And what um, what ends up happening is. Uh, what has happened since 1950 um, is that the World Health Organization has kept a, an eye on outbreaks because of novel strains around the world, right? Even our seasonal flu vaccines are tailored to that. But also this uh, surveillance of global outbreaks is to detect if there are pandemic strains emerging. And so what this looks like is, uh, is having countries um, report outbreak data to the World Health Organization, one, and then secondarily donate the samples, right? So the tissue samples of disease uh, of disease get sent to the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization um, is a network, so it has partner labs. But these partner labs are in the global north, um, primarily Anglo countries, uh, U.S., U.K., Australia, also Japan. So where these labs are placed determine who's doing the research, and then. And then, who ends up having access to the treatments developed from that research? And so, because of the world system where the resources and the labs um, uh, or the corporations are based in the global north, that is where a lot of the uh, treatments end up uh, treatments end up being becoming available. And so, that means. That global South countries, low-income countries, have less access to the treatments being developed. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, you have to throw in big pharma here. Big pharma exacerbates this problem because it contracts with the global North to get them the supplies. So, U.S., for example, even in COVID, bought up the supplies um, to COVID vaccines, and this this means that there's less for low-income countries to buy, right? So, this is pharma's motive is profit, right? So. And that logic, they're going to contract with nations that can um, give them money for the supplies. Okay, so into this picture um, is 2005. We do have a uh, what was thought to be a pandemic strain. This is H5N1. So H5N1 does not end up being a pandemic flu strain, but nobody knew that at the time. Few countries were heavily hit by this flu strain, and this is Indonesia is one, China is another. Um, and so into this picture, I've painted right the global health network. Um, Indonesia is then it's incumbent upon them to send their outbreak data and their samples of disease to the World Health Organization. So what Indonesia, the state, ends up seeing, is that um, they discover that Australia. Uh, plans to develop a vaccine against uh, the H5N1 flu strain with the samples that were derived from Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Now, Indonesia had problems in the past accessing treatments because of this um, center, the global hub, right in the global north. Um, They've had trouble accessing the supplies. So Indonesia um, worried that they couldn't get uh, the... Australian vaccine, even though it was developed from their own disease, from Indonesia samples, they st- start a sample stoppage. So they start to um, refuse to send their samples to the World Health Organization and the partner labs. So I view this kind of like a work stoppage, right? So you stop providing the necessary um, things needed, the necessary ingredient, which is the disease samples and then the vaccine industry cannot do its thing. So um, Indonesia does this flu-sharing stoppage and starts pivoting the conversation to benefit sharing. So rather than emphasize that it's incumbent upon Indonesia and other afflicted nations to send in their samples, they start arguing that benefits need to be distributed equally, particularly if a country has the country was the one that um, sent in the sample. So if Indonesia sends in disease samples, it should expect that it gets some treatments back from that. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the argumentation, um, other Global South countries um, jump on board. So about 20 of them uh, end up um, pointing out this problem, this disparity in the global health system. They work together, they reform the flu sharing system, precisely precisely, um, to the fact that if you are an afflicted nation and you donate your disease samples to the World Health Organization, and then that goes to these partner labs, then you should get a portion of the treatment, or you should get um, labs that will help you uh, do better uh, disease research or better disease surveillance. So in essence, you should get something back if you are sending in samples to the World Health Organization. Um, Yeah, so uh, lessons for global solidarity from that, there's a few, right? So one is the power of global South coalitions, right? They had a direct stake in global equity. They needed treatments for their um, nation that was affected by disease but not getting the treatment. The power of coalition um, is very important if these are – Countries that have less power in the global system, only only solidarity and coalition work will really work against the power of the global north, right? And um, their partnership with global corporations. Um, now with COVID, we've seen, unfortunately, um, the continuation of global north buying up supplies, big pharma selling it to them. And again, global south and low-income countries not having enough uh access but um i will say at least we had this example around pandemic flu uh that that showed that coalition can work and also i will say those were state-led endeavors right indonesia partnered on a state level with other global south countries but we have social movements we have advocacy groups um, who are representing not just global south interests but also Um, issues of marginalized people, whether they're um, in the U S or in Indonesia or another country. So that movement from people's movements also have a lot of potential to reshape this global North, global South disparity, the power of big pharma, sometimes the inequities within a country. So that's what I'm really looking for.
0: And you've, well, you've partly answered my last question here, but, um, I'll ask anyway, in case you want to add something. And chapter four, which we've been speaking about, deals with pandemics and global preparedness. And the book was written before, uh, just shortly before the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. So inevitably, I wanted to ask, how do you think all the preparedness played out in the face of COVID-19?
1: Right. So yes, as I've mentioned, that um, the skewed international system towards the global north, big pharma like this has continued... Um, we see that Global North has bought up advanced contracts for vaccines, and um, and that there's less access um, for COVID. We see the same thing happening with monkeypox, right? So there's mm. this is an ongoing problem. So that's that's for sure. Um, what I also want to say though is that there's a securitized dimension of pandemic preparedness. Um, because it was birthed in 2005 right so this is the war on terror and I, that's what I, I focused on which is really the origins of pandemic preparedness um and this has really exacerbated this problem of america first um that mentality but it's also exacerbated this uh, militaristic view on disease hmm. so in 2005 um the the primary target right of that militaristic attitude then was China it's still China to some extent and so um, U.S. representations and attitude towards flu was very much in the realm of seeing um, them as coming from this dangerous enemy other that the U.S. borders need to be protected right so this is this nationalistic type of sentiment um, that reproduces in many sites, along border controls, xenophobia, um, hoarding, right, the vaccine and public health treatments because you think America first, all of that. Um, and we saw this play out too under COVID, right? So conservatives and military hawks combined forces portrayed China as a military threat, but also as a disease threat. Um, and then this, of course, piled on to anti-Asian racism within the U.S. And we saw these violent attacks against mm-hmm. Asian Americans widely. And so I wanted to point out that, that that militaristic aspect just exacerbates the global inequalities I've already talked about mm-hmm. and white supremacy. It's It all becomes um, <sighs> weaved together and, and white supremacy, health, right, become inter- security become intertwined in this way that doesn't do service to um, targeted communities, targeted nations altogether, um, and I'll say a last piece around securitization and inequity, and just you know what's the alternative actually, right? So I would argue for more disentanglement of health from military. So one of the legacies we have from Bush is this merging he did, right? So health became under the domain of biodefense. Um, And what this did, as I've mentioned, is it ends up skewing health focus and monies and research towards these particular types of problems. So in this case, it was bioterrorism, biological warfare, and also um, some money towards pandemics. Now, the money towards pandemics is good. Um, towards bioterrorism i would say is less necessary but um what both of those things did is diverts money from common health issues right the chronic everyday diseases we also just have basic health coverage gaps people do not have access to good care and facilities right we have a lot of inequity in our system so all of, a lot more money and funding and attention should really go towards these everyday problems and um people have basic health care basic access uh it would actually stand us in very good stead for any pandemics that happen right so we know that for example um bipoc low income queer disability communities who are already underserved they were their health problems were exacerbated by covid um, so then we had this quote unquote or right, pre-existing conditions which really just means that there are long have been long-term systemic inequities in access to care right the fe- health effects of discrimination of social inequality have left groups with these um, poor health outcomes and then when something like COVID hits that problem just becomes worse so all this is to say if we had better basic health care and better universal access it would stand us and better stead in the present and in the future
0: hmm. wow so that's Really interesting to hear how biodefense is connected with health justice. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, Gwen, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I do want to ask you about what you're working on next because I know that it is something that's really interesting. Oh,
1: thanks for asking. Yes, Um, so my new project is focused on Chinese medicine, as it serves health justice actually so there are really two points here so one is that in addition to right, the issues i was talking about before with big pharma right profit or in military interest we also have this thing called bio, biomedical hegemony so this means that biomedicine is the dominant system we have at least in the US and like any tradition it has strengths and weaknesses but um, that is what's that is the thing that's legitimated, right? that's given money. But we have a lot of other medical traditions that have a long lineage. Chinese medicine is just one of them. And they offer different strengths in the type of care that can be provided. And so what I'm doing um, in that big picture is looking at Chinese medicine practitioners who are um, utilizing the unique modalities of Chinese medicine to address things like intergenerational trauma or to make a space where um, gender non-conforming and non-binary people um, are addressed with the health issues they present, right? And not put into um, inappropriate or like uh, not um, misapplied healthcare. So there are these liberatory um, aspects of Chinese medicine that can, um, address oppression and address things like addiction address things like trauma um that really have not been fully explored um mostly because again of biomedical hegemony within the u.s so that's that is my new project
0: well that is absolutely fascinating and i can't wait to read it and um have you back on here to talk about it
1: all right great anytime
0: so, um, Gwen, thank you so much for this. I want to remind everyone the book is Bioimperialism, Disease, Terror, and the Construction of National Fragility by Gwen Um And thanks again, Gwen, for coming on to the show.
1: And thank you again for having me.